Welcome to a very exciting edition of Rebellion's educational series. We have a living legend with us, a professor who I have looked up to for over 20 years, Professor Jan LeCun of NYU, is also head of AI for Facebook. His work with computer vision has redefined the field. He's considered a godfather of CNNs, a godfather of deep learning, uh, a godfather of AI, really. And to have him with us is, is such a true honor um, for someone like me who spent uh, his whole life in machine learning and AI. Uh, this is truly a dream come true to have you on the show, Professor Lacoon. Thank you so much. It's very nice to meet you. Oh. It's very, very nice to be on your show as well. Oh. So let's start with deep reinforcement learning. It was only brought to me uh, recently by a student. And it seems to be a very exciting you know, fusion of deep learning and reinforcement learning. Do you have an opinion on it? If so, uh, obviously we'd love to hear. I actually have a pretty strong unorthodox opinions on this, on, on reinforcement learning in general. So, you know, in the context of machine learning and AI, you know, machine learning has kind of taken over AI uh, to some extent these days. And there are sort of three types of, of learning that, that people use, three paradigms. The, the most common one that everybody uses is supervised learning. Then there is the less common one, reinforcement learning, which is used mostly for games. There is a bunch of applications, real world applications in which it's used, but it's a very small number. Um, and then there is uh, unsupervised, self-supervised learning, something that's kind of ill-defined, which is uh, perhaps the type of learning that we observe in animals and humans. And the question is, you know, where is the future of, uh, of AI? Um, so as I said, now almost all of AI is supervised learning. Almost all of machine learning is supervised learning. A little bit of it is reinforcement learning. And a growing number of it is actually based on what's called self-supervised learning, particularly in natural language processing, a little bit in computer vision. Um, so what makes the difference between all of those things is that in uh, supervised learning, you tell a machine what the answer is for every example you show it, right? So you show it an image of a car or a truck or, you know, an elephant or a table, and you tell it this is a truck or an elephant. And if the answer is different from what you want, the one you want, you adjust the parameters so the answer gets closer to the one you want. In reinforcement learning, you don't tell the machine the correct answer. You just tell the machine you answer, the answer you produced was good or was not so good. Okay, so you give it some sort of rating on, on what you know how good the answer or bad the answer was and what the machine needs to do is figure out in which direction to change itself so that its answer gets closer to the one you want uh, so this rating is called the it's called the, the um, you know the reinforcement or or the the, the value function actually mm -hmm. you don't know this function and so the the machine doesn't know this function it has to try things to figure out how to improve itself um, and then Self-supervised and unsupervised learning uh, is more like, you know, learning about the world, learning how the world works without actually directing it towards a particular task. And so reinforcement learning has, you know, excited people a lot over the last six years or so, five, six years, uh, because of big success in, in games like, uh, you know, Atari games, video games, uh, chess, Go, you know, things like that. And what you notice there is that those machines require an enormous amount of interactions with the game to be able to learn things. So the, you know, the best Go players have to, that, that train themselves, they have to play the equivalent of, you know, tens of millions of games before, before they, they play well. And uh, uh, there is a, a system put together by DeepMind to play um, StarCraft. And that's StarCraft to play just on one map 
has to train itself for the equivalent of 200 years of real-time play, which is way more than any human, uh, of course, uh, on StarCraft. So reinforcement learning is very powerful, but it's unbelievably inefficient in terms of number of trials. Yep. Um, and that's because it has to be trained from scratch. The system has to learn absolutely everything from scratch. So it needs to really operate in a vacuum of sorts. It, uh, you know, it, it has to be spoon-fed everything. And so, you know, I guess it makes it limited, but where do you see it uh, kind of moving from finance and games? Uh, you cut out for a bit, so <laughs> I didn't have the question. Oh, I said uh, uh, beyond finance and games, where do you see the, uh, uh, reinforcement learning moving? Well, yeah, I mean, interaction, like situations where you have some sort of uh, ongoing process that you have to learn online, uh, you know, reinforcement learning uh, can be used. But there, you know, there's a lot of those situations where the objective is very clear and you don't need to, um, you know, the, you can use supervised running, right? So you want to do time series prediction, for example. Time series prediction is a form of supervised running. And, uh, or, or you could say self-supervised running because the data you use to train the machine is of the same nature as the input it observes. Uh, and, and so there, you don't need to use reinforcement learning because uh, reinforcement learning is the situation where the cost function is not clear. You know, it's not clear yeah. what, uh, like how to compute how well you're doing. You have to be told how well you're doing by some external uh, system. So, so jumping to deep learning, do you think it's overhyped? Um, I think it depends on who you talk to. So uh, I think, um, or, or who, you, who you listen to, right? Yeah. So there are certainly a lot of people uh, who are going to overhype uh, deep learning. And those are people who are uh, either looking for money or attention, essentially. Yeah. Okay. Um, and there are people who are completely realistic about the, the, the possibilities of uh, the, the potential outcomes of deep learning. Uh, and, and those tend to be, you know, the people who are more kind of on the, on the science side of things, on the research side of things. So, so people on the research and science side of things are well aware of the limitation of the techniques they use, mm -hmm. and they don't have a very strong incentive necessarily to oversell uh, what, they, what they're doing. Uh, except to their peers, but their peers are trained to detect uh, BS. So, so, you know, it doesn't work very well. But, you know, in the context of industry or the media, then it's different, right? Or, or the public, um, there is a lot of hype going on there. And uh, it has to be um, called because it creates very high expectations for a lot of people who then do not get fulfilled. And when, that ha when that's happened in the past, mm -hmm. in the context of AI, it created... Uh, uh, you know, a big kind of uh, uh, disappointment and, and uh, an AI winter, essentially, where people said, like, you know, you promised me the moon and you're not delivering yeah. it. Well, you're a professor at Courant, and I was at the NYU Career Fair uh, last fall, and almost every other quant student came up to me and started talking about uh, Q-learning. So do you think, uh, you know, Q-learning is overhyped? Yeah, possibly. Uh, I mean, they, it's very useful in, in, in some situations. Uh, I think there are a lot of situations where people attempt to use reinforcement learning. And there are situations where reinforcement learning is really not the most efficient thing to do. Yeah. Um, so, you know, if you're a quant, you want, okay, you want to take the right action, but you also want to model the, 
the market or the the, the set of uh, financial instruments you're you're you know you're you're manipulating um, or you're investing in or or you know making decisions about. And so one part, the the, the second part here is is prediction. Uh, and then given that you have good prediction, given that you have a good model of, uh, of, of the system you're trying to, um, to, to control, uh, what action are you gonna take? So for the first part, modeling the system, um, we're not talking about reinforcement learning here. We're talking about essentially supervised or self-supervised learning, time series prediction, essentially. Uh, then for the second part, um, it depends what quantity you're optimizing. So, uh, you want to, um, you know, maximize return, and it could be that uh, the sequence of actions to do to do so is not uh, cannot be derived, you know, directly from your from your predictions. But it could be that they can. Okay, so there there are two, you know, classically going back uh, decades, there were sort of two ways to approach this kind of problem. One is reinforcement learning, and the other one is uh, is uh, optimal control. Okay, and in in many situations, the right thing to do is more akin to optimal control than to reinforcement learning. Cool. It's much more efficient in many ways. Professor Lacoon, I uh, just the idea came to me while we were speaking. I know you were at Bell Labs. Was deep learning used at Bell Labs? Or if you, don't, if you can't answer that, that's okay. I don't know. No, of course I can. Oh, okay. um, it, it, was, it wasn't called deep learning at the time. It was called neural nets uh, or okay. you know, multi-layer neural nets, right? They became, uh, we changed the name you know, in the mid 2000, uh, basically to kind of reflect the fact that the systems we're using were not only neural nets, they were kind of slightly more uh, general than that. But uh, yes, uh, at Bell Labs, I joined Bell Labs in late 1988. One of the first things I, I did was um, you know, develop convolutional nets and uh, I applied them to uh, character recognition and AT&T eventually built a bunch of systems uh, based on this technology that were commercialized for reading checks, for um, no, 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 your computer so vision technology made it possible for banks to read checks. You completely uh, changed the game for finance. So uh, no, you're, you're, that, that's some of the work that I, I first read about when I was still a student myself and when I first came across uh, your work as a researcher. So, uh, so you'd say deep learning was around in the, the 80s or as early as the 70s or? or uh, no, but late 80s really was, yeah. was when things uh, started. So, I mean, the backpropagation algorithm that is universally uh, used for training neural nets, you know, popped up around 1986, 1987. Uh, and uh, that's really what enabled um, uh, multi-layer neural nets. And then convolutional net popped up around 1988. Uh, and that's what enabled to, you know, us to do um, computer vision essentially, but at the time it was black and white images and stuff like that, uh, you know, phase detection, but, but like very few applications were practical because of lack of data and compute power. Um, but, but character recognition was certainly a, a big successful thing. Those were deployed commercially by AT&T around 1994, I think the first applications um, and, and continued on until the, the early 2000s essentially. Are you trying to make Facebook AI more like a Bell Labs in terms of your research or? Um, it, it is very much like Bell Labs in many ways. I mean, when I, uh, so I started uh, Facebook AI research and you know, when I joined, that was kind of uh, what I was asked to do. And um, I drew on my experience from Bell Labs uh, and AT&T Labs. I also worked briefly at NEC Labs. I worked at you know, a couple of other companies. I had many friends in various industrial research labs. So, you know, I knew what, you know, how research in industry can be successful. So I picked some of the best ideas from 
from Bell Labs, Xerox Park, you know, IBM, Microsoft Research, et cetera, and sort of try to uh, create a research organization that um, is both ambitious in its goals, so can, can do long-term research where people are not sort of directed top down. Uh, the, the, the research done at, at Facebook, I research really is bottom up, the researchers pick their, their topics, but at the same time, establish channels with the development group so that whatever innovation comes out can be, um, can have an impact on product. And that's been very successful, actually. Are you guys working from home still or are you back at the office? Yep, yep, it's all remote, yeah. Oh, uh, wonderful. So jumping back to general adversarial networks, uh, what's your feeling on that? Is that uh, the architecture of the future? Generative adversarial networks, yes, Gantt. Uh, no, I, yes and no, okay. I think it opened the eyes of a lot of people, including me, on you know, kind of a, a new ways of uh, building uh, uh, neural nets or learning systems that basically capture the, the structure of data. All right. And How do they, they differ do from like a Bayesian neural net? So they're not Bayesian at all. They're not, they're not even probabilistic, actually. I mean, okay. they, they claim they are, but they're not. Uh, so what, what a, a GAN does is that um, it can uh, turn a bunch of random numbers into a structured object, let's say an image, right? So you, you train a neural net so that when you draw a random set of numbers, say 100 uh, random numbers from say a Gaussian distribution or something like that, you run it through this neural net, at the other end comes out an image of a, of a face, for example, or or a dog or something like that, right? And by, you know, when you change those random numbers slightly, uh, what you get is a slightly different dog or a slightly different face. And so that's the idea of a generative model. Some of them are probabilistic, some of them are not. GANs are not really probabilistic in, in many ways. They don't model the density of the, you know, probability density of the, uh, of the output. Um, but they are kind of a really interesting set of, of methods and I was really excited about them for a while. I'm less excited about them now. I'm trying to replace them by something more efficient because they have some flaws, um, uh, you know, which you know, can, can be a little technical, but um, so I'm trying to find um, a, a, a somewhat general method to train uh, uh, machines to learn the structure of data without being trained to do a particular task. And, and oh, that's very cool. a, a particular way of doing this. That's very cool. Well, speaking of training, uh, do you think that the, I guess, well, training a single model um, on multiple problems at once is, you know, uh, I guess, you know, one neural network that can do both face and speech recognition, is, would that be more efficient, do you think, in the future? Oh. Sorry about that. Uh, I had to disappear oh. for just a couple of seconds. Of course. Change the lighting. Um, yeah. Okay. So there is this big, um, this big question as to how do you make learning machines more general than they are, right? You train a system to do image recognition on a particular data set and you show images that are, you know, slightly different from a slightly different context or whatever. And, and those systems are somewhat brittle. Sometimes they, they focus on biases in the data that really are irrelevant. So for example, you train a system on the standard data set that everybody uses called ImageNet. Um, you know, one of the categories is a cow and all the cow pictures are cows in the field. And now you show the system a picture of a cow on the beach and the system 
doesn't say it's a cow because every single cow it's ever seen has been on the green background. And so it's using the context to make the recognition. And in this case, the context is different, right? So uh, to some extent, it's not completely uh, figured out the concept of, uh, of cow. So, um, so that, that's the question, you know, how, how, how do you make those systems less specialized and less brittle? So uh, what's called multitask cloning, which is what you're describing, you train the system, not just on a single task, but on lots of different tasks or on some task that is, uh, you know, so general, it may not be the task you're interested in at the end, but it's much more general. So let me give you an example. A few years ago, the best computer vision system that Facebook was using was trained, uh, was a big convolutional net. It was trained to predict the hashtags that people type on Instagram when they, when they upload a, a photo. And so the engineers, you know, selected something like 17,000 different hashtags and then trained some giant neural net to predict which of those 17,000 hashtags would be present in any particular picture. It's not a particularly interesting task, but that neural net was very well trained to be able to recognize just about anything afterwards. So what you do afterwards is you, have, you chop off the last layer and you stick a new last layer, which you train for the tasks you want. And because the bulk of the neural net has learned how to you know, recognize images, now you don't need many samples to train it to recognize a cow or you know a track or or, or a table. Um, so, uh, so that's this idea of uh, uh, weekly supervised learning or transfer learning, right? So you, you train on a very general task and then yeah. you specialize uh, the system on a cool. new task. Uh, so you can do multitask, you can do transfer, but ultimately what people are working on now uh, in computer vision, and they've been working on this for a while in, in natural language processing is, uh, is self-supervised learning. So you train the system not to recognize anything, but to represent the data in some way, in, mm -hmm. some, in some good way. Um, and then you use this pre-trained system um, as, uh, uh, as input to the system that does the tasks that you want, that you know, recognizes objects, or uh, in the case of text, you know, does translation or whatever. That, is, that has been astonishingly successful in natural language processing. And so far, not so much in vision, but it's making very fast progress. Oh, very cool. Well, speaking of progress, while we're coming to the end of our show, I guess, what are you most excited about in the world of AI right now? Uh, well, this whole idea of self-supervised learning really, uh, I mean, you know, the, the big question we need to, to solve is that you observe someone uh, like a, a young child, uh, you know, learning to manipulate objects or a young child learning new, uh, new concepts, right? You show a young child a few pictures of an, of an elephant. It doesn't need to be a photo, it can be a drawing. And this young child will know what an elephant is, right? Regardless of pose and everything. Um, you are 17 or 16, you learn to drive a car. You know, in about 20 hours of training, you can learn to drive a car. Maybe not perfectly, but you know, you, you've done a pretty good job. And almost no one has told you, you know, here is how you drive a car. You basically kind of learn more or less by yourself. Now, if you were to take you know, today's machine learning system, supervised or reinforcement learning, uh, to manipulate, to recognize objects, uh, or to drive a car, it would take millions of trials, millions or billions of examples, uh, and, and, you know, millions of hours of uh, practice causing many accidents in the case of uh, self-driving car. This is one of the main, one of the main obstacles actually to uh, completely, completely autonomous uh, uh, driving. And so then I guess you'd agree that Elon Musk's Tesla's lead is, is quite severe then. Um, 
he, I mean, he's not very much ahead. I mean, Tetsuya is not oh, very really? much ahead of everyone else. No, no, no. You think uh, it's two years ahead, a year ahead? What would, would you put it at a number? Nobody is, you know, much ahead by, by more than a few months. Anybody oh, really? Oh, very interesting. I'm so glad I asked you that. I mean, in terms of concept, algorithms, et cetera, you know, some people invest in hardware a long time. And if the hardware turns out to be uh, really important, it's very hard for other companies to catch up, but eventually they do. Uh, but like in AI research, uh, development is a different thing, but in AI research, nobody is ahead of anybody by more than a few. Professor Lacoon, so many of the biggest fund managers I know from Fidelity and whatnot own Tesla stock because they believe that they'll have five to 10 years of a monopoly on driverless technology. And that's what they think the value is. Uh, that's probably wrong. Oh, really? Wow. That's, that's unbelievable. Where they may have uh, five or 10 years in advance is uh, battery technology because you know, they have the big factories that nobody else is building. And it takes many years to build them. But, uh, but AI, no, I doubt it. I think, uh, I think a lot of other companies have kind of similar technology. They may not have enough, you know, the same amount of data. They may not have the same kind of specialized hardware, but they can buy it from NVIDIA and ARM now. Um, so I, no, I don't, I don't think so. Your battery storage sentiments are shared by many of the robotic CEOs who come on our show. They've said that energy storage is going to be what allows uh, robotics to move forward. And so... Yeah, well, there's many issues in robotics. I think one of them is the is, is this issue of self-supervisioning I was telling you about, right? So self-driving cars are, you know, some sort of robot, but, you know, what we'd like is, is you know, household, household robots. We'd like uh, virtual robots that are, you know, virtual assistants you can talk to, you can answer any question you want, they can assist you in your daily lives. And for this, we need, we need to make the, the next uh, big leap in AI. In my opinion, that will come from uh, allowing you know, finding ways to get machines to run as efficiently as humans and animals. Um, as, as I was saying, you know, it takes too many samples, too many trials for current paradigms of machine learning to learn what humans and animals learn in a few hours. And so what is it that we're missing? We're missing a big piece. In my opinion, it's called self-supervised running, but we'll see. Well, this was an amazing conversation, Professor. You are absolutely a fantastic wealth of knowledge. I couldn't be more thankful and stay safe during these crazy times. Thank you, you too, and most welcome. It was fun.